Welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. You can access the podcast from our homepage on emdocs.net and subscribe in iTunes. We have included a summary of all these points with respective links for further reading. Manny, what are we looking at today? We have three great posts, SJS and TEN, the 5-Minute Rapid Neuro Hand Exam, and Penile Injuries. The first one focuses on SJS and TEN, as well as several other dangerous skin conditions that can trip up emergency physicians. SJS is on a spectrum of allergic reactions when 10% of the body develops a blistering rash that begins with prodrome of nonspecific flu-like symptoms. The rash starts on the face and torso and spreads to the rest of the body, sparing the palms and sole. The hallmark mucosal involvement is what we tend to look for, especially conjunctival involvement. Usually the trigger is some type of medication, so med reconciliation is key in patients that are taking many medications, especially active cancer patients. Treatment is basically supportive, stop the offending agent, local wound care, pain control, and IV fluids for resuscitation. It's recommended giving 2 cc's per kilograms of percent epidermal detachment in the first 24 hours. These patients can become really sick, and tools such as a Scorton tool can help you in prognosticating patients who may benefit from a transfer to ICU or even a burn center. So let's talk about the mimics. The first one is acute generalized erythematous pustulosis, AGEP, AGEP, an uncommon yet severe skin reaction that is often confused with SJS and TEN. It is a drug reaction presenting with non-follicular sterile pustules on an erythematous and edematous base. These are commonly seen on flexor surfaces and is often seen first in endotrigenous areas that spread to the trunk. It usually develops quickly and presents within the first 24 to 40 hours of starting a medication, unlike SGS, which usually takes days to weeks after being on a medication. Oral mucosal involvement is seen in 25% as opposed to involving the majority of those with SGS. Conveniently, the management is very similar to SGS-TEN, primarily consisting of discontinuing the offending agent and supportive care, which usually leads to resolution of the rash within two weeks. Topical steroids are useful with systemic steroids having unclear benefits. The next one is erythema multiforme, or EM, which is an immune-mediated condition that presents with classic targetoid lesions. This sometimes can have mucosal involvement. The target lesions are classic, but they can have varied presentations as this rash typically evolves over the course of the disease. A significant distinction is that the lesions of EM tend to be popular as opposed to the atypical target lesions of SJS, which tend to be macular in nature. When these lesions affect mucosal areas, it's called EM major. When there is little to no mucosal involvement, it can be described as EM minor. The lesions typically develop over three to five days and resolve within two weeks. There are a variety of risk factors that contribute to the development of EM, including infections, medications, malignancy, and autoimmune disease. However, infections account for approximately 90% of cases, with herpes simplex virus being the most common in adults and mycoplasma in kids. Our next is drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. Dress. As the name hints, it's another severe drug-induced reaction that may be difficult to differentiate. This syndrome presents with fever, eosinophilia or elevation of atypical lymphocytes, lymphadenopathy, facial edema, and generalized malaise. The rash is usually delayed two to eight weeks after drug exposure and may continue or even worsen after withdrawal of the causative agent. 
We are most concerned about an organ involvement in these patients, often the liver, lungs, or the kidneys. Dress usually presents with a morbilliform rash starting from the trunk and upper extremities. The rash becomes edematous, causing periorbital edema in the face. It can take many forms and present with pustules, folliculitis, or scaling, or even a rare form of mucosal involvement. Therefore, it can be very difficult to diagnose and differentiate from other rashes and requires a high index of suspicion. Next is pemphigus vulgaris, or PV. This is a chronic autoimmune disease that is characterized by acanthalysis, where the desmosomes that hold intracellular connections are destroyed. The epidermis loses the keratinocyte to keratinocyte adhesions, resulting in painful blisters. These blisters are Nikolsky sign positive. Some important distinctions of this rash from others we have discussed is that the pruritus is typically absent, and there is typically mucosal involvement, primarily the buccal mucosa. Up next is meningococcemia, specifically from Neisseria meningitidis. Unlike many of the rashes we have discussed thus far, the meningococcemia rash is a symptom of a much larger disease process rather than the disease itself. One of the first symptoms of meningitis to present is a classical rash that can rapidly progress from nonspecific to petechial to hemorrhagic in a matter of hours. The rash begins as 1-2 to two millimeter non-blanching petechiae on the trunk and lower extremities. These petechiae can then coalesce, turning into larger purpura. Purpura fulminans is a severe complication you can get in these patients, characterized by an acute onset of cutaneous hemorrhage, DIC, and vascular thrombus. Eventually, bullae and vesicles form that can eventually lead to gangrenous necrosis. Next is staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, a potentially deadly skin condition caused by a bacterial toxin from Staphylococcus aureus, which undergoes hematogenous spread from the skin. It presents with erythematous painful skin that starts primarily in high friction areas such as skin folds. Flaccid bullae, desquamation, and a positive Nikolsky sign characterize the rash. Importantly, unlike SJS or 10, there is no mucosal involvement and the rash is more superficial. This rash most often affects infants and children and may present early with irritability and poor oral intake. Lastly, erythroderma, also called exfoliodermatitis, is a rare rash identified by widespread scaling that covers most of the skin surfaces. It is most often seen in elderly male populations. Many causes can incite the rash, including underlying skin conditions, drug reactions, HIV, and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. The skin is usually red, warm, pruritic, and painful. The patient is often shivering due to heat loss from cutaneous vasodilatation. There may be other exam findings that correlate with underlying cause, such as nail changes with psoriasis or lymphadenopathy and splenomegaly seen in T-cell lymphomas. The rash has a quick onset if caused by medication, while it can take longer to develop when other etiologies are present. My favorite part of the post is the summary at the end. The first major point is to take a thorough history. Identifying any new medication exposures over the past several months is key, as well as how the rash has changed, the presence of systemic symptoms like fever, and travel. The second major point is the physical exam, including evaluation for mucosal involvement and the presence of a Nikolsky sign, which is skin sloughing with lateral pressure. Keep in mind that SJS and 10, pemphigus vulgaris, and staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome are Nikolsky positive. Our next post released by Anna Pickens of EMN5 fame focuses on the rapid hand neuro exam. The great thing about this video is it provides you with tools you will probably use on every shift. For sensation, the median nerve can be tested at the tip of the index finger, 
while the radial nerve can be tested on the dorsal aspect of the hand between the thumb and index finger. Sensation for the ulna nerve can be tested along the tip of the pinky. For the motor exam, test the median nerve by having the patient make the OK sign and try to pull their thumb and index finger apart. For the ulnar nerve, have the patient spread their fingers apart and have them resist as you squish them together. Finally, for the radial nerve, have them make a fist and push down on their fist while they resist and pull upward. The final post for today comes from the Unlocking Common ED Procedures, where the authors look at penile zipper entrapment injuries. While rare, these can be devastating. A lot of what's out there has been shared through case series rather than studies. Once a penile entrapment is confirmed, the post suggests a stepwise approach to management of such injuries. The steps include 1. Identifying the nature of the injury, 2. Pain management and analgesia, 3. Approach to penile liberation. Two main types of injuries have been identified. These include penile tissue getting caught in the sliding mechanism itself, as well as the penile tissue getting caught between the zipper tree. It is important to identify the exact mechanism as they have different approaches to liberating the patient from the entrapment. If the mechanism is not easily identified, better exposure should be obtained. In this case, it would mean cutting the clothing off around the zipper, leaving only the zipper and immediately surrounding fabric still attached. This will allow for different lines of sight to better identify the type and extent of injury. Once the injury is identified and a plan for intervention has been made, attention should be planned to pain relief as well as anxiolysis if needed. Particularly in the patient population which this occurs in primarily, this may need to be addressed before you can better expose the injury to identify the mechanism. Pain control should be initiated utilizing minimally evasive measures before proceeding to sedative hypnotics or opioids. If your ED has a child life specialist, involve them in the case early as they are experts in keeping children calm and cooperative in the ED, particularly if they are about to undergo a procedure such as this. The patient may not even let you examine them due to distress or pain. Start with intranasal medications and topical amyla and go from there. Pain control can also be achieved through a dorsal penile nerve block. Your patient may still be in distress even after nerve block. This may be from inadequate analgesia or from the trauma of the entire injury or experience. At this point, the patient may require procedural sedation in the ED and or consideration to go to the OR with urology for further management. Lastly, the penile liberation. I'm going to leave this definitive treatment to you to read in further details as it involves MacGyver-esque maneuvers and visualization of the images in the post. This rounds out our summary of the key EM docs posts. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.